Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson, and we're back. Um, <clears throat> today we're doing, we're asking the question, is church membership biblical? Um, that's kind of a broad question. It is a confusing question. There's a lot of different types of church membership. There's a lot of different types of church governance. And so we're going to kind of talk about church membership, church governance, and um, what the Bible says about these things, and then what people have done throughout church history. So in, in essence, we're going to try to answer, is church membership biblical? And then is congregational church government biblical? Biblical, right. And so, um, I don't know, Nick, you usually have like an introductory thing that you always tell everybody, and so I'm just going to pass it off to you, and then, and then I'll start asking questions. Oh, about like what? Yeah, so, you yeah. just always say a bunch of stuff in the beginning. Yeah, yeah so, so I'm going to argue that uh, church membership is biblical, and I'm going to argue that congregational church government is minimally biblical. And I'm going to argue against Nick and right. get destroyed. <laughs> this, this is going to be, then we're going to put it on YouTube. Nick Gibson destroys stupid lib Gen Z or something <laughs> like that. Um, okay. So, yeah, because I don't think, I, I have a hard time fi- finding biblical evidence for church membership in the way that it's done today in most American churches and evangelical churches. So that's my argument is like, I, I, it's not that it's wrong per se, it's just not biblical. And and so I I want, I also think if you're a young person who loves the Lord, really loves Jesus and you want his church to be great, that spotless bride, rather than that ravenous horror of Mm -hmm. Exodus or Ezekiel 16, Mm -hmm. then you're like, shouldn't it be better than this? Shouldn't we be better than this? And I think that you would rightly find yourself dissatisfied with what you're experiencing. And so I think every young Christian should go through this. And then the question is, is the problem that the church government is unbiblical or is it, is the problem Mm -hmm. this or that, or is the problem that like, even with all this biblical help and spiritual help God gives us, man, it's just hard to have a holy community of believers right? that really f- seems to function well with the right. right kind of authority, the right kind of submission, but also the mm. right kind of community, the right kind of initiative right. and all of that. Yeah. The ultimate question seems to be how much of the problem at a local church is that people are at the local church and they're evil mm. and that, or that structures and, um, and the way and like mm-hmm. methods are suck. And that right. those two things are difficult to figure out. Is this structure conducive to the anthropology? Like, is, yeah. like, is this structure good for human beings? Like sometimes people talk about how like modern government schooling and classrooms sitting in rows mm-hmm. at desks is like, that was for yeah. like the 1800s when you needed a bunch of clerks right? and it was never good for boys. Right. And so it like the schooling system now is just, it's like not good for the humans right? and it's not good for what we need the humans to be able to do. Mm-hmm. You could ask that same question about the, so should we reform education? That is a question with the church. You could say, okay, we have these church structures. Mm-hmm. We have humans as they really are, as Jesus is changing mm-hmm. them. And then we have like what we're trying to become, which is like a holy people of God. Mm-hmm is this church structure conducive to pursuing those ends? And I think that's a really important question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's jump into it. I'm going to ask questions. Nick's going to answer. And then I'll, I'll say if I disagree with things or whatever, say why I'm wrong. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll disciple Nick into the true uh, biblical understanding of church membership. Okay. My first question is where does the idea of church membership come from? Uh, one is where does it come from biblically, but uh-huh. then also when did this thing start to happen historically in the church? When did right. people, and why did they say, "Oh, here's the problem. We have some sort of problem. The solution is church membership." So yeah, okay. So in the in the ancient church, um, the language of church discipline is basically unheard of, and what's used instead is whether or not someone was quote a communicant, meaning you could come into the worship service and you could take communion. 
Mm-hmm. So because it says in first Corinthians that when we take communion, like unworthily, mm-hmm. we eat and drink condemnation upon ourselves to the point where Paul said some of the Corinthians actually literally physically died because of the sacredness of the Lord's supper and the condemnation God will allow to be in judgment because of the purity. Like that's like taking the Lord's supper, eating, eating. So metaphorically speaking, at least eating Christ's body and drinking his blood is the moment of the most necessary purity and the most truthfulness of piety in the church. Mm -hmm. It is the moment of purity. And so if God is going to judge, it would be there, right? Because he's restoring the purity of his church, Mm -hmm. it's truthfulness. And so there was this idea that the apostles taught that like, because this was so sacred, you needed to prepare people to come to it. You shouldn't just let people just walk in willy nilly, not understanding what it meant Mm -hmm. and not prepared for it by baptism and catechesis, catechesis being like instructed in the ways of the Lord so that you had a faith that you could say, I believe. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So usually that amounted to memorizing the creed and knowing what it meant. Yeah. Right. And then you were ready or prepared for communion. And so become being a communicant Mm-hmm. was to be a church member, so to speak. Does yeah. that make sense? That is the priest would receive you to communion. Yeah. If you would come to like a house church, you would come. And that was the pinnacle of Christian belonging. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so the guardrails around quote church membership were yeah. guardrails around the Lord's table. Yeah. As you get to the third and fourth century, what could happen in the church is if, if you committed a notorious sin, that is like a sin out in public that people knew about, or that yeah. the church found you would engage, there was church discipline mm-hmm. and they, it was judicial in the penal sense of, you would get like put in the bench of hearers. Mm -hmm. So like, so, so for example, if you committed adultery and you repented, Mm -hmm. you still had a 10 year penance before you could be a communicant again. For people, this is all within the Catholic church at this point. So it wouldn't have been called the Catholic church. It would be the Catholic church, small C. It would just be the universal church of the early church. Because how it worked. Because there's, there was no, there was nothing. There was just the church until the 11th century. Yeah. Right. And so, um, around the time of Nicaea, they had, because they were trying to protect the the integrity of communion, mm-hmm. if you sinned, you would you would engage in this penance, right? And so, at, when you went into church, there was a place to sit if you were quote a hearer, and a place to sit if you were a communicant. Okay. So if you weren't a communicant yet, you could come, you could hear the gospel preached, you could be part of Christian worship, but you didn't go and take the Lord's body and blood. You didn't sacredly mm-hmm. come proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes in communion. Right. And so if you committed adultery, let's say mm-hmm. you would then sit back with the hearers mm-hmm. for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Now it was believed that you died, you would go to heaven, mm-hmm. but, but you were like, you were recognizing you were, mm-hmm. you're engaging in a reckoning of the seriousness of sin mm-hmm. before God. Mm-hmm. Right. So like now we don't mm-hmm. have that kind of penance, but now we also don't take sin very seriously. Yeah. So it's one of those trade-offs, but anyway, in the early church, that's what they did. And so by protecting communion, the church determined its membership. Right. So, I mean, but I don't think that you have to have like a, that you have to do penance for you to take sin seriously as a church. I think I don't either. I other, think there's other ways, to, other do ways to do that. I think that like, uh, yeah. And when I say that, I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying that's, that's just what, what they done. were thinking mm-hmm. at the time. Okay. So, okay. So that's and and so at what point did they start doing church membership? I'm sure it came out of the reformation, right? That like after the reformation, there was a bunch of different types of churches that came out of that. Yeah. And then at some point within from whatever, 1600 on between 1600 and now they started doing church membership, church some, membership. some sort of denomination. Yeah. I mean, because if you, because in the, well, first of all, you have to be, a, you have to in some way be an Anabaptist or in the Baptist tradition to even talk about church membership like we do today mm-hmm. in the, in the sort of like reformed sense, because in the Catholic 
systems. Because remember, until you, as long as you had national religions, the concept of church membership wasn't even relevant. Yeah. So like if you lived in Germany in, I don't know, 1480, Mm -hmm. you had been baptized a Roman Catholic. You were a Roman Catholic. You became a church member at your baptism Mm -hmm. and you would be a Roman Catholic as long as you lived in the empire yeah. The Holy Roman Empire the rest of your life. Was that pretty close to conversion too? Like when you were converted to Christianity? No, well, you would be no. baptized at like eight days old. Oh. And you were considered oh. a church member at that point and a member of the nation. The two were basically the, the same, same thing. And so and it wasn't until wow. the Reformation where you got different religions in the same country. Yeah. And you had spaces in the European world where you could live in the same place, but be two different religions. Yeah. As that happened after the reformation, you started to get people asking, well, what church are you a part of? And like, are you part of this church or that church? And like, what's the criteria of being like, right. And then you, you begin to develop these ideas of church membership that were more than because, because even in churches that are paedo Baptist, that is they baptize children, church membership is adjudicated by baptism into Mm -hmm. the covenant community of God. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's church membership. Mm -hmm. You belong. So like, when I got baptized as a Roman Catholic baby, I was a part of the Roman Catholic Church, even though you weren't saved. Correct. Well, because they well no they they would have said my original sin was washed away in my baptism. I was exercised of the power of the devil, and I was not yet at the age of accountability. So in that sense, I was in the grace of God. I was until, under God's until grace. Until the age of accountability. Right. Then, and so they had a sacrament called confirmation, yeah. whereas I come to the age of accountability. At that point, I must profess for myself or I walk out of communion with the faith. Right. And I'm no longer under the grace of God. Yeah. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And and so I would, I, I'm not a Catholic, but I would believe something like that only in the sense that I believe that before the age of accountability, being under the grace of God isn't part of you volitionally choosing Jesus. But for you to be saved and in the grace of God, by choice, you have to come to believe. Right. We just, we don't baptize people until later because we don't have the same doctrine of original sin, that baptism cleanses original sin. That difference between our theology makes it so we could baptize people later logically. We have the theology of original sin. We just don't have the theology of... The, the baptism cleanses baptism. original sin. Yeah, we don't have that, right? I mean, well, Calvin had... The, the, in I mean, we're a more Calvinist church. Right, a more Calvinist, more than some, more I than guess. Arminianist. Yeah, but most ref- very reformed churches wouldn't accept that I'm that I'm truly reformed. Yeah, but yeah, there's most people. There's a lot of people that think I'm a Calvinist, and they're and Calvinists don't think I'm a Calvinist. Yeah, but the really strong ones. Calvin didn't believe like or Calvin. He did believe in infant baptism, I guess. Right. Yeah, all of the magisterial reformers yeah. believed in, in paedo baptism. Yeah, so Calvin, Luther, it, it isn't been. until you get the Anabaptist, Anna is again. So everybody in Europe had been baptized as a baby. So the, quote, Baptists were rebaptizers or baptizers again, hence yeah. Anabaptists. But that group includes modern-day Baptists, but also Mennonites and, a, and that whole group of, like, nonviolent yeah. um, rebaptizers. Yeah. Or okay. people who—but, of course, the rebaptizers, the Anabaptists, that's not what they called themselves. Right. They called themselves Credo-Baptists. That we believe, we baptize people on their own profession of faith. Credo is credo is Latin for I believe. So that's what we are. We are we're credo Baptists. That's credo what we call Baptist. ourselves. Yeah. Okay. Where in the Bible? Okay, so now we know kind of some of the history of this. History, right? Where in the Bible? This is where I get caught up because I think as um, one of the main points in evangelical theology is that if you can't find it in the Bible, mm-hmm. just get rid of it. I guess or yeah. something like that. So yeah. I'm I'm kind of like. 
where can I go? Where in scripture can I go to? And particularly where in the New Testament can I go to and say, okay, here's the something that even could be alluded allude to uh, church membership? Because I like you can. I feel like I can look through the New Testament and be like, and not find really anything that has that looks like what we do now as church membership. And I think that this is where I run into, and maybe some other younger people. I don't know. Yeah. I run into, okay, if it's not explicitly in there, I have a hard time. I mean, this is my issue. One of my issues right. with like youth group too. It's like, well, this stuff isn't in there. Maybe right. there's a better method that is set up in the Bible to doing this. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. This is, so if, you know, if you debate a Roman Catholic on something like this, they'll mm-hmm. say something like, well, you know, the Trinity is not explicitly in the Bible, even though there yeah. are verses that refer to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But like, so it depends on how pedantic you want to get. Yeah. You know? Complementarianism isn't in the Bible, right? But it's, it's ta- a theology, it's like the Bible. The Trinity is a right. theology. Yeah. yeah right. So, what, one of the things I wrote in the notes here is that, like, I, the word, when you say, is it biblical? Yeah. I think you can mean up, up to three, at least three things by that. One is, is it literally stated in the Bible? So, Jesus being the Son of God is literally biblical. It's literally literally said verbatim in the Bible. Yeah. The second is that the thing is a right expression of the diffuse of a diffuse biblical theme or a parted out teaching. So like if you go through the Bible and you, there's like part A here, part B there, part C here, part D. And if you know they exist, logic just clearly shows that they're related to mm-hmm. each other and they would develop into this, this Idea. statement. Yeah. Then it's biblical, but you, it was parted out but in the Bible. You had to bring more. it together. Yeah. And I think complementarianism would be under that. Like you would work yeah. out, there's, right. it's hard to say, well, there's just one passage that teaches all yeah. of this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third thing is that you believe that it's an agreement with the Bible, right? It's not necessarily, but it's not maybe necessarily the consequence of its teaching. It's not the only way to take the Bible, right. mm-hmm. but it's an agreement with the Bible and it's a good way to do something. That yeah. belief requires prudence. There's some judgment in that. Yeah. Right. And you want to get the fundamentals down before you go into that. Right. So like my position at High Point Church is called senior pastor. Okay. You're not going to find a verse that talks about senior pastors in the Bible. Right. So a senior pastor is a, having that position is a prudential decision that if you have leadership in the church and you have elders, you may have multiple pastors. Should there be one that is leading? Right. Those are all prudential decisions. Which are total. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I think in complementarianism too, and in some of the structure of the Bible, you it le- it leans towards an idea of like a of what Jordan Peterson talks about in the hierarchy. But it's hard to lead anything without somebody at the point, and that and then and then also other past if all the pastors were all the senior pastor, then you wouldn't have other types of pastoring that would need to be done. So that makes sense because you cover the basis of elder and pastors, which is in the Bible, mm-hmm. and now you're moving into this this third section of it's in agreement with the Bible. You're a pastor, but now we're just going to specify what type of pastor right. you are. Right. So I would argue that church membership, if I had to put it in one of these three things, I think I could argue for it in, inside of all three of them. I think that there are a couple of places where knowing who is in the church, that is the invisible church made visible by the local church mm-hmm. is known to mm-hmm. everybody. That's assumed mm-hmm. verbatim. Mm-hmm. So for example, in first Corinthians five, where Paul says that this man living with his father's wife, he needs, when the church is together and the Holy spirit is among you, you need to, as a group, throw this guy out. Yeah. You see that for that to operate in a local church, you have to know who the church is and who isn't in the church. You have to know who, who is he talking about when he talks about you who are the church who are together. You have to know who that is. Yeah. It's not just everybody who shows up that week. And so in that sense, like there's certain places in the Bible where it, it, 
pretty directly assumes you know who the church is, right? Mm -hmm. On the second level about the diffuse biblical theme, if you go through the Bible and you look at all of the assumptions about believers and commands to believers Mm -hmm. in terms of their responsibility to each other Mm -hmm. and what it means that they belong to the people of God, and you just make a list of those things, yeah, that list amounts to this thing we call church membership. So what's happened is we've made a list of things the Bible teaches right. and then we're like, okay, what do we label this? Right now, if you were like, Nick, let's label it belonging. Mm-hmm. And just, that'll be our technical term for it. Belonging, church mm-hmm. belonging. Yeah. I don't care. Fine. Church, it's church belonging. Yeah. So this is a, this is a phrase that we have used to label a list. Right. Yeah. So if you go through that the Bible, sense. it says like in Hebrews, don't forsake meeting together yeah. in um, first John talks about loving the brothers and sisters when they're together in first Corinthians yeah. 11, it talks about how we should relate to each other in relationship to communion. Mm-hmm. Um, it, in other places it talks about how we should receive teaching and who should be in charge in the pastoral epistles. We have like, how do we respond to, to leadership who's mm-hmm. over us authoritatively? So there's some dynamic where I know who my pastor is mm-hmm. and the pastor knows who his sheep are. Mm-hmm. Well, what designates that you put all those together and you say, okay, what do we name this list? And sort of within American churches, we have just come to label it church membership. Yeah, I think that when going into what we're talking, we're going to talk about next. I think that it, that my main frustration isn't with church membership; it's with the it's with um, <clears throat> congregational led churches, which seems to be one of the reasons why we have church membership. And if we didn't have congregational led churches, it doesn't seem like we really need church membership because there's a certain responsibility put on the church membership person to make biblical decisions, being a person who, who is part of the body and that helps make hard right. church decisions. And so if that wasn't put on, if that responsibility wasn't put on them, which I don't think it should be put on people who I would say, they including myself are biblically illiterate. A lot of times the yeah. average person just, doesn't have the time and theological training to make really good biblical decisions. Um, they shouldn't be, have any say in it. And it feels super, it feels very American to me and just very like, of course the Americans want to have a say in what the church does. Like, like, of course that's what they want to do. But in this structure, in the church structure, in the way that Paul set it up in the new Testament, from what I can tell, it doesn't look like the congregants have a huge role in anything. Other than yeah. coming to church, being a part of the local body, and like then going out preaching the gospel, taking care of the widows, taking care of the the poor, um, yeah. and doing those things, and and should they be like voting on whether or not we spend five million dollars on a on a building? Right. No, I think that they can they can I think that they could put. So uh, let me start from the beginning. So <clears throat> what I have written down next is it's I said it seems like one of the main. Reasons church membership exists today in America is because most evangelical non-denominational churches are congregational-led. Is there any biblical backing for this type of church structure? Then I wrote, no, there's not, which maybe you could argue. And then I, and then I wrote, interesting, it seems like the Bible has given us a specific stru- church structure to build the church on and to sustain the church. And so that let's start there because I think that before I get into all my other frustrations, I think that that's like kind of what it feels to me or what, from what I've seen, that's what membership has been built on is the, the, okay. Um, but I want to, I need to take one step back to the question you asked first, which is, which is your assessment of the utility of church memberships. Cause you're like, it seems like the utility of church membership is this designates the voting population of a congregational church. So like we designate people, church members to say you can vote. Okay. Now on one level, 
And so therefore you have to substantiate that congregationalism is a good form of church government right. to recognize you even need this category to begin with. Yes. Okay. I, I, I agree with that. So we'll come to that argument in the church governance question. However, the question is, is there another utility to designating church membership? And I think there is because almost every church that doesn't have, um, that doesn't have congregationalism still has some form of church membership. Yeah. Now, partly that's just theological. It's just like you are part of Christ's church. Yeah. Yeah. But also from a pastoral perspective, there's incredible utility in knowing who is in my flock and who is not. Right. Because for example, in first Corinthians five, in the beginning part of the chapter, it says, listen, um, no, it's actually the second part after the church discipline part. Mm -hmm. It says, listen, um, with, with such a person, meaning somebody who claims to be a Christian and lives Mm -hmm. with their father's wife, Mm -hmm. don't even eat with such a person. Mm Mm-hmm. He said, but I'm not talking about the people of this world. And in that idiom, what he means oh, is non-Christians. People who, yeah, people who he, don't claim to be right. Christians. Right. And so what he's saying is for the average Christian, our demeanor towards somebody truthfully is partly relevant to what they claim to believe. Hmm. Right. So if I'm a believer and on my block, there's somebody who claims to be a Christian mm-hmm. and they're just in no way a Christian and they're giving Jesus a bad name. Mm-hmm. Paul says, you actually shouldn't associate with that person. There is a certain separation because they're giving Jesus a bad name. Yeah. The same person with the exact same behavior who is not a Christian. Yeah. He's saying you can't you can't avoid every non Christian. You have to evangelize to that person. Right. He's yeah, saying first you'd have to leave the world that's completely impractical. That's stupid. Yeah. But then secondly, like, yeah, you're supposed to move towards that person, yeah. call them to believe in Jesus, and mm-hmm. then amend their ways having yeah. believed. Yeah. Right. 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 Now, as a pastor, whose job it is to adjudicate that. Like who's a Christian, who's not a Christian relative to the church, mm-hmm. knowing who claims to be in my, in my flock and who doesn't claim to be in my flock is relevant because if you're coming as a hearer, you haven't even claimed to be a Christian yet. And I come down on you with church discipline. I shouldn't be doing that yet. I but need to know your standing. There's a bunch of steps that come before that. Like, I feel like one way to figure that out is if you have a problem with them, you could say to them, we could ask a question like, are you Christian? And then if they say yes, then you could move forward. Like, I feel like we don't need to go through this whole church membership thing where we have to all act so sophisticated and like we're all theologians when we're not. Like, I just feel like it creates this false sense of like you could literally say if you saw somebody in your church like me, who I'm not a church member. I don't know if I should say that. whatever. I, if there's going to engage you quick, I'm sorry to the people out there. I love High Point. Um, and I so I'm not a church member, but I go to your church. I've submitted to church discipline. I've gotten in trouble by you. I've gotten talked to by Mike. And I've I've done that. Like I've done that without being a church member. So how, why can't because I'm a Christian, because I'm following Jesus and I know that Jesus tells me that I need to be a part of the New Testament says I need to be part of a local church and be in, in, and really like submit to my pastors, submit to my elders, submit to my leaders. Um wouldn't wouldn't you say that like if somebody's like can't somebody who t- claims to be uh, who is a church member at your church just say no in the way that I'm just saying yes so like i it just feels like a weird unnecessary hurdle in in like this weird unnecessary like club doesn't or is that okay. yeah here's what i would say that the first is is that i think you have the false I think you have the positive, right? But not the negative. So if I, if I go to somebody who's not a church member and I say, Hey, are you a believer? So you've been here a while. You seem to be part of the church family. Are you a believer? And they say, yes. And I go, okay, there's this thing I fear in my observation of your life that I need to bring you to your attention as your shepherd. That might work. Yeah. In fact, I've, I've clearly done that before. Yeah. Right. But the opposite isn't true. If somebody is a church member, 
and I come to them and say, Hey, there's, I have, I have this thing I need to talk to you about. And they say, well, you know what? I'm not, I'm not really under your pastoral authority. You see, they can't do that because I'm like, no, you're a church member. You are under my pastoral authority. And I have done that also where somebody has been resistant and they're like, I don't want to have this conversation. And I say, listen, um, I understand that, but you are a church member. And when you became a church member, we made very explicit that one of the fundamental realities of becoming a member of this church is that you are under the spiritual authority of our pastors. So you can cease to be a church member and you can avoid this conversation, but you can't do both. And part of the reason is, is that your church membership functions as a tool where our church participates in your assurance. Should you believe that you are in this standing of grace, that your faith is real and that you are, you do belong to Jesus Christ. Part of the objective external criteria by which you are assured of your faith is that we all agree that your claim to regeneration is credible, right? Yeah. Right, Because you're, you belong to Jesus and you're a church member. Right. And then if I come to you as a pastor and say, listen, there's a problem here. I'm undermining your assurance. Now, if you say I repent, you keep your church membership, mm-hmm. you move towards the gospel. Great. Well, then you have even more assurance because God is operating in your life, bringing you and giving you the gift of repentance. But if you reject it and I take away your church membership, what I'm doing is I'm saying, Andy, I can't, I can't participate in assuring you that your faith is real. Yeah. Your faith might be a delusion. Yeah. And so, so by the formal taking that of that away, I'm, I'm making a pastoral claim. So even if you avoid the conversation by revoking your church membership, I can still, as the community of leading that community of God to say, you should not feel assured right now. Do you think that in your claim to faith, I would in that scenario, uh, substitute church membership, revoking church membership for excommunication, which I don't think we do enough. They're of. the same. So uh, in our oh, church context, so would you get same. kicked out of the church if you so got your membership? So if I revoke membership? somebody's church membership, that includes excommunication. That is what excommunication is, is you should not be a communicant. Yeah. You can't come to communion. Which it, so which we explicitly like tell people, yeah, we explicitly tell people yeah. don't take communion in this spiritual state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you don't kick them out of the church. Like you don't make them leave. So like somebody, so somebody had like an affair. Only if they're abusive. Oh. So they can lose their church membership. Huh. They cannot be a communicant. Yeah. They essentially go back to what the ancient church would have called a hearer. They can come and hear the gospel. They listen. Right. And hope that it does something, but they can't participate in ministry. Okay. They can't participate in any of the ministering of the church. They can't be a communicant, which means they're not a Christian. Yeah. I I I mean, like, like ecclesiologically speaking, as the church acts out the invisible faith, right. Coming and taking communion is the outward action of the fact that you are saved. Yeah. If you're not a communicant, that is, you don't receive communion. Yeah. What you're acting out is you are not saved. You are not a yeah, Christian. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You have to. And so I when mean, we revoke somebody's yeah. church membership, we are also excommunicating them. Insane. We're saying you are not in this a spiritual state of faith. Right. Right. And of grace. Therefore, you can't communicate. You can't yeah. come and take this because if you do, huh. you'll be eating condemnation onto yourself and right. it'll be worse right. because not only are you not a Christian right now, you're also going to add to that lying and right. self-deception. Which, which makes it harder for you to come to repentance yeah, right. and so alleviate this and become a true communicant again. Right, right, right. Right, Because remember, every place in the New Testament where there's church discipline, there's also, it's very clear how you receive somebody back because that's the goal. The goal is they come to repentance yes. and we receive them back yeah. into church membership, mainly meaning into communion. Yeah, I, I think I'm all for all that. I just feel like it could be done with or without church membership. Like that scenario can yeah. be played out with or without. Yeah, church in membership. some ways, church membership is the certificate. Yeah. Of the of assurance of the ritual action relative to communion, which represents the spiritual reality of Christ dwelling in your heart through faith, and you 
being regenerate. And so we have like the spiritual reality yeah. that's represented in our ritual reality, which is communion, which is like adjudicated in us in, or with us as we, as we're interacting with each other through leadership and, co- and connection with this thing, church membership, right. which is the administrative representation of that. But just to be clear, and pe- so it gives us something to interact with functionally. People- just so people know, you don't not let people who aren't members take communion. I, I mean, you can take communion no, if you're yeah, a Christian. Yeah, that's a whole other issue. But yeah, what's called open communion is if you claim yeah. faith in Jesus the Christ, right. we will let you come to communion on your own right. recognizance. Which seems to be a little bit... It that is, muddies the water. It is spiritually here. dangerous, yeah. Yeah, and not that I'm I'm not against that. I don't know. I haven't thought enough about that. But, but it's like, one thing to not be explicitly admitted admitted to a communion every time. Then us knowing who is receiving or coming up to communion, who has been explicitly barred from it for sure, the time sure, being until yeah. they come to repentance. Can you see the side, of, uh, my side of the argument in the sense that I'm like, if this can be done with or without church membership, this sort of excommunication and getting and and church discipline in a way, mm-hmm. then doesn't it seem like uh, church membership is kind of just like a. It just seems like a, a fantasy in some ways to me. I'm just kind of like, I could go with it or I could go without it. Well, I mean, it is as in long some as ways. It, oops, as long as it is what you say it is, which is, um, w- w- but but you haven't added on to the extra part of like being able to vote. And that's where I have most right. of my issue. If it is just what you just said it was about communion and partaking in, in the ministry and being a part of what we're doing here at, at our church, I'm like all for that. It's but, an administrative symbol. Yeah, that points to the ritual symbol communion, which points to the the mystical reality of our spiritual union with yeah, Christ, which yeah. we can't grab. Yeah, I can't I can't take you and say, Andy, look, I'm holding your spiritual faith in my hand. Yeah, you right. see how it's not okay. Yeah, what I have to do is to say you can't come to the ritual. Right, and the administrative Based structure by which fruit. you can't yeah. come to the ritual is that I'm revoking your membership. Right, which that I think is the is... administrative thing that we have by which yeah. I participate in your assurance. Yeah. Yeah. I'm formally right. revoking. It's a it's symbolic, yeah. not just verbal. Yeah. And it's connected to the ritual. So is one of my, then as I refine my position, is it that I have a frustration with one of your rituals, which is congregational voting and congregational democracy? Yeah. yeah you disagree with, yeah, you disagree with the church government. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is different than objecting to church membership. Right. Because it depends on what type of membership Because there can be other reasons I, we're fine, using, yeah. there's other things that the church yeah. membership is operating If as. all of what you just said was only what church membership was mm-hmm. at high point and it wasn't in the governance uh, and it didn't have anything to do with governance, mm-hmm. I would be like, I, I could be, I could go either way. I'd be like, right. yeah, that's now, I have no issue. I got, I'm not totally for, I'm not totally against it, but it's okay, sounds Now, good. what I've said then is only defensible in churches that actually do church discipline. Which, Which is, is the vast minority of churches. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. So for most churches, they don't actually do the pastoral work mm-hmm. of involving themselves in mm-hmm. sin and repentance in the lives of believers yeah. in their church. You're supposed to, if you're not doing that, I don't see how you're a biblical shepherd. I would love to not do that on a certain right. level. I'm in avoiding, con- I don't really like conflict. Yeah. I face it because like, I, I feel very similar it's, to Jordan Peterson. Where he says, yeah. the reason I get right into conflict is because I want less of it. We can get rid of it. Yeah. Right. And that's handle people, it right. so that yeah. things are better. Yeah. So I am yeah. a sensitive person. I don't love conflict. I got yeah. good at it because my life was full of it. Yeah. Um, but I don't love it. So I would love to not do that. But the reason I do it is because it's so healing. Yeah. Some people be like, oh, you're a church and you shun people or whatever. That's not it at all. More than half of the people yeah. I've done church discipline with mm-hmm. have returned to the Lord and their life yeah. is so much better the, for it. And, they, and some yeah. people thank me to this day. Yeah. Right. And it saves marriages. And some people have said, you're a judgmental jerk and you're shunning me. And how yeah. dare you? And most of those people are people who decided just to divorce their 
spouse, right. abandon their family and children, like shack up with some guy. Yeah. And they need me to tell them, listen, I'm not going to, I can't stop you. I'm not a magistrate. Right. The, the keys I hold are not the keys to the city hall, but the keys of heaven. Yeah. And I, what I'm telling you is you have shut yourself out in this state. You've yeah. walked away from the faith right. of Jesus Christ yeah. and you are following the God of this world. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And I, I wish you would, and then I wish you would come back mm-hmm. in repentance and faith. You can return to the Lord. Yeah. And right now you're harming your conscience right. and you're creating a delusion. And so I think even though those people hate my guts, some of those people will later come back and they, I will never know they stopped hating me, but they did. Mm-hmm. And others of them will hate me still for their good. Right. Like I, I'm still, I'm still trying to do something for their good, even if yeah. they don't recognize it. As yeah. That, right. So church membership is supposed to be a mechanism of church discipline. Yeah. And it only matters in that sense. If you do church discipline, let me say one more thing about which you could submit to whether or not you mm-hmm. have the certificate. Now, let me defend the indefensible for a second. Yeah. So let's say congregationalism wasn't a good form of government, Okay. but you were going to do it anyway. Yeah. Which is weird. What's the yeah. best way to do it if you're going to do this bad thing? Is it just to have everybody who shows up to a meeting able to vote? Or is it that you have some kind of pre-vetting that people at yeah. least have a testimony of faith that they actually believe and they know something of yes. the basics of the creed of the Christian doctrine, even yeah. if they're not advanced or systematic or sophisticated, yeah. they at least believe in Jesus. They've repented of their sins. They've been baptized mm-hmm. and they affirm the doctrines of the creed that at yeah. least that vetting takes place. Yeah. So a smaller group of people are voting. If you're going to do congregationalism, then a robust view of church membership is the best version of that bad thing. I agree with that. I don't like bad things though. So I'm kind of just I like, totally agree. let's get rid I'm of I'm not the saying I think congregationalism is bad, but I'm just saying one of the reasons I'm really serious yeah. about church membership. And when you started this conversation with me, you're like, Nick, I don't like church membership. You didn't say I hate congregationalism. You were like, I think church membership is stupid yeah. is because I've been really serious about church membership the last 13 years yes. because my view is right. If you're going to be a congregational church, right. you have to have a robust church membership. Mm. Right. If you're going, if then, if you're going to be a congregational church, you had better have a very robust church membership. Church membership. Yeah. That sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 and that's what I said at my entrance interview to this church. I said, listen, I can, I'm cool with two or three or four different kinds of church government of all of them. I think some form of congregationalism may be the best, but I'm not sold on it. Mm-hmm. I said, but if you hire me to be your pastor, I am going to be very vigilant about church membership. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. I think that's the best way to go about it. I, I, I think like my, yeah. So, so. And okay. I think, let me say just one last thing. Then we'll mm-hmm. go to, I think if you go backwards in the Bible, I think that like people who we would not consider highly sophisticated were making decisions in the local body of Christ or yeah. the local body of the covenant of God. So like whether you go back to the synagogue and the local elders being the leader of that yeah. and the and, and many decisions being made congregationally in the synagogue or whether you look at the very early church, right? You had, so like, it, it's reasonably likely that you know more about Christian faith than some of the elders in Thessalonica when they first got appointed. Yeah, but also they had a direct connection to the apostles, which mm-hmm. is hard to, for me. It's hard for me to be like, like, I can't imagine what Timothy and Titus and the elders of, of yeah, of Thessalonica or, or Corinth knew. I'm sure being with Paul for a year or three months or six months mm-hmm. is is probably like being with 
our greatest theologians for like 10 years. So like there's, I don't know what the, what the proportion is there or, um, Mm. but like I, and affirming orthodoxy was much easier because there wasn't, there was orthodoxy established. Yeah. And people didn't, like you said before in those first couple of centuries, because Christians were being killed, the congregants didn't have a bunch of time to sit there and theorize about all the theological stuff. They just had to do Christianity and be faithful to what they knew as as true and be willing to go die for their faith. If that was right. I mean, you, basically had the creed and the Christian moral code. That was your theology. Yeah. You know, a couple letters. Yeah. If you got lucky enough. Um, okay. So, okay. So church government. Yeah. I was going to go into church government because I'm like, I want to preface this by saying, based off what you just said, I can see ways in which church congregational led churches could be healthy, but it's really, really dependent on, what what I think is the current uh, world worldly culture, and one of the things that you mentioned sometimes, not on this podcast, but you've mentioned it at church before, is like um, that America is no longer a Christ haunted nation, nation, and that it's just like a yeah, it's a Christless nation. Like there's no like Christ yeah. like and by me, what you mean by that is that like 50 years ago there was still like a. Um, like Christianity was so embedded in, in the formation of America from like, from its inception to, I don't know, now to like 50, 60 years ago that even people who weren't Christian still had some sort of moral, um, understanding or Christian moral understanding or Judeo Christian understanding, um, that they lived by to be like what they would say is like good people. And I think like, and to be civil people. And so everybody, even though maybe there's political disagreements, it wasn't fun, uh, foundational worldview disagreements. It was just like, uh, I disagree on what the country should do with this and economically, and you disagree economically. Now, what we're seeing in America is like the, 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 the Christian and the world are being so, I think, being like much more isolated from each other yeah. in worldview. Mm-hmm. And that like, the, the world is now so much different. And this is what Carl Truman talks a lot about in his books and in his writings is this, this there's two different world ways that people are looking at the world now. And mm-hmm. like Christians are becoming separated from the other. Are a subset of one of those two. It's not like that middle part of the as a Venn diagram yeah. or whatever that, that was the Christ haunted part. So I want to preface. Right. And so then if anybody comes in the church with any of those worldviews, right. well, why, how are we going to keep the church yes. with integrity when right. pe- these people like are coming up with maybe yeah. completely unchristian worldviews, exactly. which I don't think would be unlike the church at Rome in the first century, and where Corinth. people would be coming in with completely yeah. pagan worldviews and, and infiltrating, which is why I think they needed I strong mean, leaders. Like that the literally apostles. is the argument in like First Corinthians. I mean, yeah. You've got a you've got a church of people, and like these people are yeah. thoroughly pagan. Yeah, and they are coming to Jesus, and they're coming to communion, and they love God, and they've been baptized, and they literally think it's cool to go to prostitutes. Mm-hmm. And like, they just have not made the connection. And Paul yeah. literally has to be like, okay, listen, like you got the first part down. Yeah, Don't like, go to prostitutes anymore. Turns out. Yeah. yeah. Sex isn't what sex is. <laughs> Unfortunately. Sex yeah. Before God isn't what sex is in paganism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's some truth mm-hmm. to that, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I think the question that, because, so one of the questions that the way this often gets talked about in discussions on ecclesiology or how should the church be ordered mm-hmm. is if Jesus is the head of the church, Authority comes from Jesus to whom, right? Yeah. From Jesus to whom. And then the second question is, who perpetuates Mm -hmm. the selection of that authority? Right. So the most most formalized, maybe you could say, is that 
authority comes from Jesus mm-hmm. to his apostles and to those his apostles designate mm-hmm. and those to whom his apostles designees designate. Yeah. Okay. So that would be the Orthodox Church, Roman Catholic Church, yeah. any church that claims to have what's called apostolic author- apostolic, apostolic uh, succession is what it's called. Yeah, succession. apostolic succession. Okay. So for so that can stretch even as far as the the United Methodist Church, but usually you're talking about Roman Catholic, Orthodox, right? The other like Eastern Catholics, yeah. and Anglicans. Most Anglicans will claim apostolic authority or apostolic mm-hmm. succession, yeah. because the break with the Church in Rome, in the Anglican Church, was the whole country. And so yeah. the people who were the bishops and so on in yeah. England yeah. had received apostolic succession to themselves. Yeah. Even, and so then when the church, they broke away from the Roman Catholic church, all of the pastors and so priests and bishops, so to speak, in the Anglican church had received the apostolic succession before the schism. Am I wrong about this, that at one point the the Pope of the Catholic church like like kind of prodded the, the Spaniard whatever the leader Spaniard leader the Spanish leader to invade England to win them back into the Catholic Church yeah that's just crazy yeah well I mean the popes had armies in those days I mean but like but yeah so England actually like went back and forth on Catholicism and Mm -hmm. Protestantism a number of times that's how you got like War of the Roses and Bloody Mary and Elizabeth and all that kind of there's a long history of that Um, and then also for a very short period the Puritans took control yeah who were like, they were kind of like low church Anglicans, yeah. but they were like against Anglicanism. Yeah. They were against Catholicism because it was formalized and sclerotic. Yeah. And they were against some of the, I, when I'm reading about this, I'm like, some of the stuff that the Puritans were against was kind of weird, like wedding rings. They would, they didn't like the, wedding yeah, rings. Yeah, they believed all kinds of stuff was worldly. Yeah. Right. And so, and, and when they were in power, but I like a lot of what when they were in power under Cromwell, yeah. they were just as bad in, in, in the sense of like they were oh. trying to control your life and your faith as anybody else. Yeah. And so, but the Puritans kind of got the bad end of the stick for a while. By the time they got to America, they still hadn't learned their lesson. Yeah. But in the American experiment, they ultimately came around on the idea of some kind of separation between what the state is and what the church is doing. But even in um, like Plymouth Bay Colony. Because and, of and, the fear of what the Anglicans were in England. Yeah. And how they suffered. Because if you're not, if you're not yeah, an authority, yeah. you're the second class citizen. Yeah. And some people were killed by the Anglican church. By the, well. Some people by, were killed by all the churches in yeah. England. So <laughs> the, like this, by the, the queen or, or the Yeah. King. So Bloody Mary was a Catholic. Yeah. So is the reason why she was called Bloody. Yeah, and then was, she ended up yeah. getting beheaded. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 But I, I think under her by her sister Elizabeth, who was Protestant, right? And I think Anglican Protestant. Thomas Cromner, who was essentially Anglican, trying to reform the Anglican Church in accordance with the Continental Reformation. Yeah. Um. Like, I think he was in charge when some people were persecuted, but then later he was burned at the stake as a heretic. Yeah. Like there was a lot of that in England in, in most of the Reformations, and so there, there, the concept of tolerance. There's so much hardcore. Yeah. Everybody's like a hardcore. Yeah. Fundamentalist and whatever they right. thought. But like if you also, all... but if you look at if you look at tolerance as a operational thing in American culture, the more tolerant we've become, the more philosophically and culturally chaotic things have become. Yeah. So yeah. like in a sense, like. The, the, what the Europeans feared right. that if we are tolerant, yeah. what we're going to get is cultural chaos. Right. They actually were proven to be right. Yeah. The question is, is it worse yeah. than like the wars of religion? What's yeah. worse, the wars of religion or what we're experiencing now, a culture that has no sense of itself. Who's, right? Who, who, who by, by like, I mean, I think you could make a, a statistical argument that I would rather have, what would you say, wars of religion? 
Mm-hmm. I'd rather have that than this because now, because we have no sense of the self, we're willing to kill children. And we've killed 70 million of them and done a bunch of other horrible things. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you say that, like, not if, I, if you had to pick between two horrific things, I would probably pick one that isn't killing a bunch of babies. Like, that, I think this yeah, is the thing that I'm wondering about, like, um, like, the, like in America... I think one of the, the the misunderstandings of what the America the what America is in its democracy and in its like what it means to be in a democracy and in free speech is not necessarily that like there's this freedom to just do and say whatever you want ever because you can't I can't go kill somebody but mm-hmm. like that there's that that there's uh, this John Adams saying that like when Jesus says that we're a slave to Christ. That's like more free than anything else that we'll ever experience. But we're yeah. also a slave. I'm trying to figure out what I'm. Yeah, the Christian worldview believes like, that sin is enslaving. Yeah, it enslaves and, the human spirit, yes. and so righteousness is yes. freedom. Yeah, and that's and what, so therefore, if you yes. give liberty in a society, yeah, what yeah. you have to do is give people the liberty to do what yes. they ought. You should yeah. never keep somebody from doing what they ought. Right. But should the government decide everything everyone ought to do? And the right. Answer is no. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why the founding fathers of the United States. Um, respect to what we sometimes call the the ability to act according to conscience. Yeah. That there's a lot of freedom for you to do what you think is right. If you are doing it conscientiously, mm-hmm. you're trying to understand the good. You're yeah. trying to figure out what's right. And then you want to do it, which you can only do, which if, isn't the same thing as being a bro and screwing around and saying, exactly. well, I think it's good. Right. 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 And, and I, so I should be free to do it. Yes. And which exactly. is the argument for pornography, for example, yeah. that like I, I have a hard time believing that people who are trying to be conscientious, mm-hmm. they're trying to discover the truth about the good and conform their life to it <laughs> would say the trafficking of women in images in ways right. that ruin their life and their sexuality yeah. that destroy like in all the all the bad things that happen because of pornography. This yeah. is a good that I should be free to pursue. Right. Nobody who yeah. takes that teleological or mimetic view of life would say this is the good I should be free to do. Yeah. If you take what Carl Truman calls the poetic view of life, yeah. that is that I am raw materials and I can do with it what I want. My life's good is the mm-hmm. exertion of will in authenticity. Mm-hmm. I do what I want and I do what I really want, yeah. right? It's an exertion of will and it's authentic. That is romanticism. Then pornography is a expression of the will yeah, and desire leaves, yeah. to express the sexuality and it's right. perfectly, quote, good. Yeah. And therefore I have to have liberty to do it right. if my society is going to be good. See, this all goes back to what Russell Kirk said. Every political philosophy starts with an anthropology. Mm-hmm. You start with what you think That's a human being is. Yeah. And then from there you determine, yeah. which is where we started at this podcast, right? right? right. Given what human beings are right. and who Christ is, what yeah. is the best quote, polity, that is politics. How do we come together as a people in the church? In the church. And so the church's polity is answering Mm -hmm. the same question as the cultures of politics. Uh, Exactly. How do you become a polis or a city, a people working together? In some way, we should be able to do it. I don't want to say more easy. Like, it's not easy to do it in the church, but... When there, when the culture, like there's so many different philosophies in the culture, and there's there should be at least one fundamental. There should be organizing principles for us yeah, because we have a written scripture. We have a written scripture. And we have a Christ. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. so I think I think like, okay, so my um, I have written down here. Church membership seems to just be a way for the church to give theological illiterate congregants. Um, Wow, my it just like uh, went away. The feeling of power and control. The feeling of power and control, and so that's kind of one thing that I want to get into. In that, like, I, I, so I understand all that you're saying, and I think that all of this is, I mean, all of these types of church governance 
governance is really interesting. And if you haven't grown, if you've only grown up in a uh, congregational led church, I would say you should look into what like the Orthodox and Catholics and Anglicans, what they're doing and what they believe, because I think it's, uh, I'm reading a book on Anglicanism and it's really interesting and there's a lot of good stuff in it. And so that's just like a side note, but so answer the question that I said that, that I was that I was asking about. Okay, you have a culture that's so far, like you're saying, that poetic view worldview that's so different from what the Bible teaches. Now we're having those people come into the church, which is great, and we want them coming to the church. We want to preach the gospel to them, but now they want to be a part of the decision making. They want to be a part of your ministries. They want to be a part of what we're what we're doing here and what the vision is. Mm-hmm. My perspective is. And this is where we probably, we've argued about a couple different things on this, but my perspective is you have to tell them no until they, until their worldview has been reformed and then they can be a part of what we're doing because then we're all on the same page. How do you not like in church membership and, and not sorry, in congregational led churches, how do you not, how do those people not influence things in, in, in a negative way? I've seen it happen in churches around Madison where for a long time, there's one, there's, they're complementarian. And then over 20 or 30 years, you know, they've kind of pushed, like kind of moved the needle a little bit to the, to egalitarianism, egalitarianism a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And then 30 years later, they do a church vote and 80%, of, 80 some percent of them vote a particular way towards egalitarianism. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, that's interesting. That's exactly what's happening in the culture. 50 years ago, 100 years ago, we mm-hmm. were more complementarianism, complementarian, and now and now we're super egalitarian. Yeah. So it seems like there's parallels here, and we should probably not be doing what the culture is doing. We should probably be doing what the Bible yeah. says to do. Okay, let me tell you why you're wrong. Okay, so... Tell okay. me why I'm wrong about that? <laughs> no, okay, so... Let me tell you why your argument is true. Your statement is true, but your argument is irrelevant. So it is true this that the culture has moved. Yet. And it is true that it has moved away from a baseline of agreeing with biblical ethics, in particular in biblical theology also. Which okay? ultimately makes the sinner feel at least, or per- we can perceive them as more wicked than they were. Mm-hmm. Not that they are more wicked, but we can perceive them in that way because yeah. of what okay, they're so doing. Let me, let me say this. In American church history... It, it, so, because the question is, what's the alternative? And the alternative is usually that people in leadership appoint the new people in leadership. Yeah. That there's perpetuation within the group. So if it's an elder-led church, the church's elders appoint the next elders. Yeah. If it's amazing. a Presbyterian group, the, uh, the regional elders appoint yeah. regional and local elders. Yeah. And if it's a bishop or an Episcopal yeah. system, the bishops appoint new yeah. bishops. Okay. Bishops appoint like da- down the line. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, first you would have to believe in some of these positions anyway. So like one of the issues with the Episcopal system is does the Bible speak of bishops and should they even exist? Right. Yeah. But let's use the lightest group possible, which is pastors and elders in a local church, perpetuating the leadership of the local church. Yeah. So one of the defeaters is the example that you gave. So you gave the example of a church that like was complementarian, mm-hmm. and then over 20 years, it seemed to have drifted. And then they voted like 80% to become egalitarian. Let's assume that that's the wrong decision for the sake of argument. Now, I know about that church and some of its inner workings. Mm-hmm. I actually spoke to its senior pastor while this was going down. Mm-hmm. Okay, the reason why that happened to that local church is because the pastors and elders led it. The pastor and the mm-hmm. elders 
became egalitarian, and then they taught the church to become egalitarian. Hold on. And they uh, discipled the church to be I egalitarian, know, uh, yes. and then the vote church voted. Now, now here's a contrast. Here's a contrast to that. Um, 17 to 20 years ago, here at High Point Church, the clergy, the local, the senior pastor, some of the teaching elders and pastors became egalitarian. They began teaching the church that it should be egalitarian. The membership rose up and was like, what are you teaching us? And then the leaders forced a vote thinking they had enough votes to flip the church's polity. And the, and people in the congregation that believed what they thought the Bible taught was complementarianism. They argued in the congregational meeting that this was wrong and that the pastor had no right to change the Bible. And the vote, went against the pastor and his leadership and this church has remained complementarian to this day because once they got rid of that pastor, they made darn sure the next pastor they got, they got was complementarian. Yeah. Which was me. Let me make an argument. Uh, so uh, that that's an example of, because yes. and, and like, if you go back to like St. Chrysostom in the fifth century. Yeah, but that wouldn't ever happen if we had. They went and got Chrysostom out of a monastery because the appointment system had become so corrupt that it was irreformable. And that was, that was leadership perpetuating leadership because there's ways for, I understand Don Carson used to say this at Trinity. He was one of my professors and he said, DA Carson, this is DA Carson. Yeah. This is DA Carson. He said, listen, you tell me the system of governance and I will show you how people can corrupt it. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, if this comes, this, all these systems will come down to piety, the piety Mm -hmm. of believers. I agree. No, I, I'm, I, I'm not arguing, um, for a perfect structure. I'm arguing for one that I think will work with, especially within this current culture better. And I think that what happens, okay. So first argument is, but the in tr- the, in the, in the, um, dis- disintegrating of this culture, the leadership of denominations and churches have been the most complicit and the leaders of that disintegration. Like if you look at the most like effective people for changing like what America believes mm-hmm. they were often authors and people who were like bishops and major leaders in like the United council of churches and the world council of churches and the upper level, highly connected bishops. Like the council of Catholic bishops are one of the biggest theological problems of the Catholic church right now. You have some bishops that are right. Orthodox believers in the sense that they believe in the doctrines of the faith in the Catholic but, church, in the Catholic right? church, but like half the bishops are pro abortion now. I mean like very, it, yes, well, very few are right. from abortion, right. but they're like, if you're, if you think that like, a lot of forms of progressivism are bad. The bishops are in the bottle for that stuff. And like, it's very hard to change when the bishops are for it. So part of it is like, yeah, like you can centralize authority, but if you centralize authority, they have more hierarchical power and the possibility of becoming corrupt and sclerotic is more intense. Right. And, and vice versa. If you, if you don't do that, your church is, then you could have more chaos, which is what is, which, which I would argue is like, yeah, we can argue in the high church Catholics and, I don't know about Anglicanism in America, but Catholics for sure, they're having problems with this right now. Now, I would make an argument right, against the Catholics. In terms of sexual scandals, congregationalism didn't fare all that much better. Like the Roman Catholic... In Baptist, the, the right, Southern Baptists. So the Roman Catholic yeah. bishops had the hierarchical system. Yeah. They didn't clean out the bad priests. But then yes. in the congregational system of the Southern Baptists, it was nobody's job to clean anybody out. And, it was just a congregational system. So when it's right. nobody's job... Nobody's responsibility to do something that hard. Nobody does it. Okay, let me say something about the church that that we were both talking about in our area that went egalitarian over 25 years or whatever. You said that those were elder and pastor-led. Yeah, that change was absolutely pastor-led that church. Okay, I understand that. Okay, what's important to remember and to recognize about that church and about other churches in America, which is happening all over the place, Mm -hmm. is that 
what happened was these people had certain convictions when they started. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm complimentary and hardcore. And then and then an entirely new generation rose up in that time period, in that 20 years, and though that new generation, the millennial generation, became the primary workers in the church. The millennial generation is, if I'm so bold to be to be general, is theologically illiterate, generally speaking, in America. I mean, they haven't done, as far as I can tell, they haven't done much good for the American church overall and the evangelical church. So couldn't I argue that, oh, well, okay, so you're hiring a bunch of theologically illiterate people. They're coming in and they're incredibly cultural and they're having a heavy impact on this pastor and this elder board. And they don't want to, lo- they're, you know, a big church. They got a lot of expenses. They don't want to lose yeah. the money. They don't want to lose the people. They lose people, they lose the money, they lose the church, they lose everything. So I, I think that... But how is that less of a problem for Catholics than for like an evangelical free church? Because if you lose one church, it doesn't... It's it's There's still other options. Like if if, if this church but drops... Like, but, but like it's the classic like, you know, it does the person who pays the piper pick the tune, right? Like, if Hey, let you, me say something really quick yeah. for my dad listening. I'm not arguing for Catholicism. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Cause like, I mean, like if you're a priest and you are strong and you go, listen, you can vacate this church if you don't like what the gospel teaches. Mm-hmm. And I will serve communion to the one person who shows up. And if not, I'll do mass mm-hmm. for nobody. Right. Well, like how how's that different than what I'm trying to do at a congregational church? Like the the congregation could p- p- put all kinds of pressure on me, and I'm going to preach the truth as best as I understand. No, it. Yeah, you, you know what happens in a more high church situation is that it will the one bad church will break down hopefully, mm-hmm. and then in that area there'll be three other good versions of that church theology. So let's say, but that could be true of a congregational just church too. Like we had people come to our church from that church we were just talking about because they thought that it had grown corrupt. But they sure. came to the same but church government. What happens government. if that happens here again? It could like, happen. In my here. opinion, it's inevitable. Every church it, has to recognize that not, it's not inevitable for High Point, but it feels to be inevitable for evangelical church no, or non-denominational churches. Point. I think it is. I, there is no church in the history of the world that has been continuously faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ for two thousand years and still stands. Every okay, church yeah, that's true. will yeah, at some point yeah. fail yeah, and God will move on. Yeah. Like, I mean, Revelation chapters one through three are very clear about that. Like these are good churches. And if they don't handle the thing, the Lord is going to come and take away their lampstand. Like his presence will no longer be with yeah. them and he yeah. will move on. And he, but he, will, I mean, there will always be a remnant. Yeah. He will always make sure his yeah. name is known in the earth. Yeah. But like at some point, someone at high point who leads here, will fail lead them out of yeah. right and this church will go astray the question is have we thrown out enough yeah. seeds and enough lines of faithfulness so that our spiritual progeny is still alive and active and yeah. holy and growing yeah. and may, it won't be all of it, it will be 100% of our spiritual children but it might be 20% of our spiritual children and that's all you can do yeah right? so what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to make our run as long as it can possibly be yes. as vibrant yeah. as and then to plant as many new works of god as i possibly can so that if and when this move this move of god or work of god fails it will have served its purpose in its time so you you're i understand and i i think that's true and there's something that i never th- not that i never thought about but in this conversation in me thinking about this i haven't totally obviously you don't think about the fact that your church is one day just going to like apostatize and be done at like, so I didn't think about that, but I think Mm -hmm. like in this culture, like I'm not, I'm for, um, congregationalism 
in a culture that can handle congregationalism. And then I'm mm-hmm. for what it, what is the other version? What Episcopal, would we call it? Episcopal or Presbyterian? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm for appointed the, governance. Appointed govern governance in a, a a culture that needs it. And I think our culture now has moved away from everybody deserves an opinion because they mm-hmm. all have virtue in some capacity, and we all kind of have a similar understanding to yeah. people need to be told to kind of like shut up and like pay attention, not in a in a kind, nice way, yeah. and like and like and like be invited in because sinners need to be welcomed, and, yeah. and we all, and we need to be, um, yeah, we we need to be like. I we need to be evangelistic. A, I think that's an interesting argument that, but see, now you're arguing. But that's what, an art of prudence. I, right. I, I understand right. that. I yeah. understand that totally. And I, I do think that, so like oftentimes when I'm church, so I was talking to somebody today who works for Overland Missions, right? That's why I had lunch with. And I was talking to them about churches and church planting and like, at what point is something a church and how are you planting churches and not like just going out and evangelizing and making a rope of sand of believers and leaving people by themselves. And essentially we were talking about like, what, what do you do if you're like basically doing what the apostle Paul did? You're trying to break mm-hmm. in a new ground. You know, it's going to be chaotic. You know, everything's not going to be good, but you have to have some structure that you're going to bring in there. Mm-hmm. How do you get authority and how do you make that work? Like, and what, and what do those people need? So in a situation like that, I think I would encourage a missionary to appoint elders, okay. not elect them. Right. You find yes. whoever you think is is the least destructive person because there's just no experience, there's no history, there's no tradition. They don't know that much. But when you leave, somebody's got to be in charge, right? So you you like so like in in for in First Timothy and Titus, you know, Paul says, "I sent you to appoint elders in every town." You're appointing elders. Yeah. So I think I think the per, personally I, for me, I think the biggest shot biblically against congregationalism is the only evidence we have in the Bible of uh, authority transitioning from person to person is by appointment. Yeah. That somebody who is apostolically in charge right. appoints the next group of people. Yeah. What the congregational oh. person right. will say is, yeah, but once the apostles are gone, who maintains that authority? The if elders, you the it's people ap- that were If you appointed. think it's apostolic succession, well, I don't you're want a to Catholic. S- I don't want to say apostolic su- succession. Yeah. I would call it elder succession or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like the elders have been appointed, so they've been entrusted with the decision-making in the church yeah. and the leadership of the church and the direction of the church. And so... Yeah. I think that congregation uh, congregation people should be able to put forth people that they think are godly right. and say, hey, here's five people that we think would be really good elders. And then the elders can look at them and the rest of the congregation and say, um, okay, so we're going to pick this one and this one and not those ones. And that's yeah. how we move down the line. And then obviously like within that, you can create bylaws and like how long you can serve as an elder and all that stuff. They can yeah. create that. But I, but I wouldn't call it apostolic Who can create that, the elders or the congregation? The elders. I think that it would be done in the way beginning of the church, like done in yeah. the elders working with the, whoever the apostle is right. and, and creating that, those rules. But like, is it is it possible for a church like High Point to transition into something into like a different yeah. p- position? Like, if- so I think one of the things we have to be clear about is that there are lots of versions of congregationalism. Yeah, that is so. Congregationalism is the so congregationalism in one sense is simply the idea that authority comes from Jesus, the head of the church, yeah. not to the pastor, but to the quote credibly regenerate membership. Mm-hmm. That is not everybody who comes to a gathering. But in the gathering, there's a group of people who have a credible claim to actually being regenerate. They're saved. They're actual Christians, right? That group of people has the authority of Christ among them. Now, they need to have shepherds over them. But so the the question is, 
how does that function? Now, in most churches, very few churches are merely congregational, meaning that everything comes yeah. up for a vote yeah. and whatever the vote is, it is. Usually yeah. like really small fundamentalist churches, maybe you're like that, where like you're the pastor, yeah. but anytime the head deacon wants to bring together a congregation and if they yeah. vote 51%, your stuff gets taken out of your office and put on the street. And there are literally churches that operate like that. Yeah. We're working with one guy in Lodi that basically that happened. He got called by a church. He was trying to lead it. One day, the head deacon just didn't like the cut of his jelly. He's just like, I'm done with you. Call the meeting. Had the vote that night. The guy was out. And so we're helping the guy plant a church in town because... People are so susceptible also to... And in smaller churches, one family can control everything and so on. Oh, yeah. So it can be really bad. So I think that that's like maybe one of the worst forms of church going. Yeah. Okay. In most churches, you have some form of mediated congregationalism, which is you have some system by which the leadership leads... And the congregation affirms, and there's a dynamic between them. Yeah. Does that make sense? So, like, um, in some churches, so, like, for example, High Point Church is an elder-led church. Yeah. We only have four congregational meetings a year. There's not a lot of opportunity for the congregation to, like, pull, like, where we're going around. They're basically, because the church is large, is in a situation where they're basically affirming or disaffirming directions we are going. So are you like basically telling me that we're just basically waiting for the day when High Point Church or other churches like High Point Church do what progressives are doing to the Constitution in the United States and say, this is a living document. We can change what these words mean. Because like in our Constitution at High Point, we have specific guidelines as to what we believe. Yeah. And Which we follow to the letter. It's not a living document. To right. Us. It's it's what it meant when it was written. Correct. Um, and if we want to do something different, we change it. Yeah. Yeah. I am 100% originalist. And so we're just waiting for the day when that just stops happening. So, I mean, Doesn't that suck yeah, to think but about? I think this is, I think that's one of the things that I want to train the congregation that like, this is why you have bylaws in a constitution at your church for how to select leadership. Yeah. Cause when your yeah. pastor starts not doing what's written there, you, you know, he's off. Yeah. You don't have to wait till he does some weird thing. He got a set of rules that he's beneath and he's not following them, which means that's also going to be his attitude towards the Lord Yeah. and his conscience yeah. and you. True. Sure. So sure. one of the things, so that's why like in, like in constitutionalism, if a president does something that's unconstitutional and he tells me he's doing it for really good reasons, right. I know he isn't because justice that is to follow your charge precedes you doing what you want and thinking what's yeah. right. You have no right to do that, right? Your right oh. to lead comes from the document you're now yeah. pretending doesn't exist. Which is the idea that the president has executive authority in America comes from the constitution. If you don't think the constitution means what it says, it doesn't mean what it says about you, which is that you have the right to do stuff. Now you're just a tyrant. Tyrants need to be removed as quickly as possible. And whether you're Donald Trump or president Obama or Joe Biden or Hitler, Richard Nixon or whoever. Yeah. Richard Nixon. (laughs) I just needed another Republican. (laughs) Even it out. Um, That people thought was too powerful. Was too powerful. Yeah. Um, So in, in high point church, Andy, like, I think this is clear. What needs to be clear. Like we are quote a congregational church. Yeah. But over the last say 30 years, we've evolved more towards a elder perpetuating leadership. So much. So we had an argument this last time where we, so the way it works at high point church is we have, have to have between nine and 13 elders. It's three-year terms. You could serve up to two terms in a row, then you have to take a year off, okay? Um, Members can nominate people for eldership. Those nominations go to a a committee appointed by the elders that is both men and women to vet everybody by 1 Timothy 1 
First Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and they call everybody to see if they will stand for election and they make sure that everybody's been a member for at least three years because you have to be part of this church formally committed if you're going to be an elder. Okay. Mm-hmm. Once everybody passes that vetting, the list of people <sighs> who still stand goes to the elder board. Mm-hmm. The elder board votes by majority on each candidate. If anybody doesn't get a majority of the elder board, they are out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who's the people who are left then up to however many slots are necessary goes to the congregation for those elders to be voted to be ratified as elders. So the elders that exist are perpetuating their leadership in that they're taking out anybody they think isn't spiritually qualified to be an elder, Mm -hmm. but the congregation is both nominating and finally selecting those who come through the process. Right. So in that way we have elder perpetuation, which is a check, but we also have congregational voting, which is a check. Yeah. Right. And in the, like in the last case, we had a guy who had been an elder before he was nominated. He was removed by the elders from contention. And he came up, was like, Hey, what's up with this? Like, you shouldn't have that much power. This is a congregational church. And we were like, well, you went through this process six times when you were on the elder board and you never said anything about it when you were the person in power. You just don't like that. You got pulled out by the elders. Right. And I think that that person has a right to know why it was done. If we know, yeah. Or like what's going on or is there something that like maybe for some reason he's not above reproach and something he needs to work on that so that maybe next year he'll be elected. Yeah. But like that, but the elders have the right to take people out of contention. Yeah. That's part of what we do. So at high point church, even though we are congregational, the, the congregation is intimately involved in the workings of the church. There are checks on that right. by the structure of the elders and leaders. Also, I have the position to educate the congregation as the preacher because we have substantive biblical sermons I am continually teaching the congregation. So yeah, they're coming to the church maybe as with a poetic worldview, a more romantic worldview. Yeah. It's my job to teach them the gospel and the scriptures. I need right. to do that work. Yeah, but... but and if they d- won't agree to it, it's sort of my job to drive them out. Right. But in, in, in a way too, it's not just your job. Like they need... These people need discipleship and personal relationships mm-hmm. and mentorship and to sure. be in intergenerational dis- uh, discipleship yes. situations and in small groups and not just in young adult ministries and hanging out with their buddies all the time and doing crap on the weekends that isn't godly. Uh, yeah, but I don't know that that's like super salient to the question of church governance. No, I, I just but I, say that. But I do think that, but I think that what you're saying is, is like... The concerns that you've had, the godly men and women at this local church and in many other local churches have like, they have like spent hours and hours debating and thinking about human nature and how people, how, and how churches go bad and how they thrive. And like, I think you have to think about human nature though in it, in, in its context. And I think that's where, that's where things are changing Mm -hmm. and maybe have totally changed by now. Yeah. And, and that's where I'm like, okay, I'm just thinking about the next 20 years at high point and all of the people my age are coming in yeah and okay. like but what l- we- okay let me but let me attack you on this a little bit because okay? i'm not gonna be because on one level on one level you're saying you don't want all this influence coming in because a lot of this influence is going to be bad i don't want influence coming in but i want people coming in to learn about the gospel i also right. want our people to be going out preaching the right. gospel but okay but you and i've had a conversation about whether or not the leadership at high point is actually too siloed like that but that is a, that's a problem of, perpetua- of perpetuation. If the leaders can perpetuate who they like and want, who they think is good, yeah. you get the siloing problem. So you get the issue where like, okay, I like, I like you and I like this person over here. So I put you guys in leadership. You're like me. And I think that that's good. Well, the pastors and elders need to have the integrity to, 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 and have the like self 
awareness to recognize when they are making decisions based off of how they feel emotionally about somebody mm-hmm. or how somebody kisses their butt or like something. So I think that that, that that's something that I'm willing to put on the trust of the elders and the pastors and say, look, we put you in this position and you're, you're here. And I trust that you have the awareness and the understanding of yourself and the people around you to say, to say no to people who are kissing your butt and to say mm-hmm. yes to people who maybe you can't stand in some ways, but you see that you think that, okay, well they have no character flaws. Mm-hmm. They really care about the church. Um, and I think high point has done that in a lot of ways. Like there's a lot of diverse opinions, mm-hmm. but there's not diverse, like character, like people just like, they're not people just having affairs and they're just like, well, well they're my buddy. And then we yeah. were going to put them on staff. So it's, diverse, I, it's diversity. Yeah. Diversity. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think I went as a pretty good job of that. I just think it's, um, I think that I put that, I'm like, okay, if I have to gun to my head or something, I'm just like, I'm going to put that in the lap of the, of the elders and the pastors. I'm going to yeah. say, I trust this to you because you've been put in this position by, I think by God. And so if you want to play that game with God, I don't think you're going to win. So the the conundrum in or the the question in the church growth leadership, the the church growth literature about yeah. this is some forms of church government are meant to inhibit bad change. And some forms of church governance are meant to streamline good momentum. Yeah. So if the senior pastor has all the power mm-hmm. in a church, yeah. And good stuff is happening. Yeah. It's like a good king. Like you want him to be able to make yeah, any decision sure. possible because yeah. you're going in the right direction. It's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. However, if the king is bad, they can take you anywhere terrible really fast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you don't want them to have all that power. Right, you got to right? have checks and balances. But if you have a really good leader and you've got lots of checks and balances with the elders and the congregation and so on. What if you just had it with the elders? Maybe that leader couldn't take you very fast, very far. Right. Because they're dealing with all these checks and balances. High point church, because we tend to be a more like of Anglo-Saxon background and like congregationalist and so on. We tend to fall under like the American constitution idea that like better to have checks on the government. Maybe things will go slower. Maybe things will be more sclerotic, more, more like difficult to get things through, but it also inhibits corruption. Yes. And I think that it's, I think that you want a lot of mutual accountability. Yeah. And in our constitution, it's not just the checks and balances like in the American government. It's what the, what are the founders of our church called mutual accountability. Yeah. So the senior pastor has to work with the elders. Either person can stop the other, but you need the other person to go forward. Yeah. So as a senior pastor, the elders can stop me. And there's some things the elders want to do that I might be able to stop. But if I want things to move forward, the elders have to be with me. I need to cooperate with them. Yeah. And similarly, the elders have to cooperate with the congregation. The congregation can stop the elders, but it can't really do that much without the elders. The elders right. are their leaders. Right. And so there's this mutual accountability between the elders and the congregation and between yeah. the senior pastor and staff and the elders and the, the, and the pastor and staff and congregation, as long as those interrelating um, uh, accountabilities are going well, then the leadership can move things forward. Yes. Does that make sense? And man, that really has worked pretty good. Okay. But here's my, here's a, we'll, we'll end it on this question because we have to wrap it up. I'm going, because there's people out there. Something came into my mouth that, that, like myself, that like to hear clear, objective answers on things. So, mm-hmm. gun to your head, Nick. You have to plan a church, start a church. What type of church governance do you um, install or instill, whatever the word is? But what what type of church governance do you think is best right now in twenty twenty three in America? 
is best. Yeah. And you because there's a gun in my head, I can only pick one. Yeah. I think I would pick yeah. this one. Really? Yeah. But my, but it would be a close first to the second, which would be like elder perpetuation. So, so like what we were saying, like el, ap, uh, not apostolic succession, but elder. No, you're elder not. perpetuation. Yeah, which would be the same way. The people mm-hmm. in charge appoint the next people in charge. But, but just, I might, I might build that with with a membership ratification. I, so the elders appoint the next people, but the credibly regenerate membership affirms them. Dude, I would even be more okay with that. That seems to me like the. That's the, what we already the, have. Andy, that's what High Point Church is. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what this that's what this gentleman in the church was complaining about. He's like, we talk about being a congregational church government, but the congregation nominates people, but then they get vetted, and then the elders are essentially choosing the right. slate of balloteers right. no. yeah. that the congregation can then affirm, yeah. and they always affirm them. So what's really happening is the elders are choosing the next elders. That's actually kind of true, but only when the congregation voluntarily goes along with it. Right. Oh, so you're saying, but, but they wouldn't need to, the current, you're saying in your second version that like they would be able to veto it, but not vote for it. Yeah. Because I think technically the this, veto is a, this is a procedural at high point. I don't know yeah. that it's in our bylaws, but even if it wasn't our bylaws, they, the congregation could vote to change the bylaws and say, we want a different process. See, we they want can process, do that right now. Right. They could do it. That's why, that's why we have rules, but you see, but here's the thing, like Andy, anytime hierarchy becomes sclerotic and becomes tyrannical, you get anarchy. Like, like people fight the tyranny until they produce anarchy. And then the result of anarchy is always a new tyranny. So like what I have to do as a pastor is I need to steward the trust of the congregation yeah, so that I can keep my authority. As long as the congregation trusts me. Then I can and do. You're what saying I'm here the way to, to give them. Yeah, I, I, need yeah, to I get it. I get it. So I, get I need it. to make sure that the candidates that I'm bringing to them, that are candidates that I believe in as a pastor, but I haven't like kicked somebody out because I don't like them. Like we, there we've yeah. had a situ- we had a situation one time where there was a guy who fit the criteria of First Timothy three and Titus one, mm-hmm. and was a was a good guy. Was a good elder candidate. Mm-hmm. He was a openly a Democrat, and at that point the majority of our elders were like Republicans. Well, they were at least conservative people. Yeah. And so they just didn't like the, they just didn't like the smell of that because they just, I don't know. And so how long ago was this? Oh, a few years ago. And so anyway, they like voted against the person and I stopped it. And I was like, okay, wait a second. If we're going to say no to this candidate, we need to be very clear as to why we're saying it and whether or not we believe the perpetuation that like what, that we want to politically structure the elder word in terms of our allegiance to certain doctrines. And so there was this debate about, was it this guy's politics or was it the way this guy p- talked about his politics publicly that made it so like conservative people in our congregation wouldn't accept his pastoral leadership? Was it that he was intemperate or was it, we just didn't like he was a Democrat. Right. And I was like, listen, you better be very clear about this. Right. right? What if I said, what if I was on the other board and I said, it's because he's a Democrat. Because Democrats are pro-choice. They're pro a lot of things that the Bible is anti. Yeah. And I would say you hit like clearly like I would say, yeah, I would either, say then you need to make a criteria by which you vet Republicans too, because there are, I would say there are the, bad forms of, of, see, I would say other, yeah, what's than, the moral other criteria? than abortion, like yeah. killing children in the womb, homosexuality, every, transgenderism. Okay. See, I would argue that there is a, something that you could call a affirmational attitude towards LGBTQ people in terms of liberty. 
I don't want to interfere yeah, with them publicly yeah. that you could say is a kind of affirmation that I think is yes. compatible with biblical Christianity yes, yeah. within a certain realm of liberty. Yes. So I would say you could, and if you were a Democrat, you might think that you might be like, look, yeah. I think we need to have a publicly affirmational civil governance towards LGBTQ stuff, though I believe homosexual sex is sinful and homosexual desires are disordered yeah. desires. And homosexuality is a right. lot and different. From so I would say you could go through these democratic platform things and you could say there's a non, very non biblical version of this yeah. and a biblical version of it, yeah. right? Except for abortion. Right. But like, I think that when you come to the Republican side, I think you can do that too. Now I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're moral equivalents. Like I think you could make an argument that the general warp and woof of historic Burkean conservatism is better than radical leftist Demo- democratism, like yeah. those, those underlying philosophies. I think Burkeanism is more biblical. So you, but don't... I do think you could come up with a very biblical way to be a Democrat, even if you struggle with who you're going to vote for, depending on what you thought was the primary issue. Do you remember when you talked about the politicization of the culture and that everything's becoming politicized so yes. that no, so that if a church doesn't want to get political, that means that they just can't preach on a bunch of different things because everything's right. politicized because people are becoming overly politicized. Right. I think that that would play into the argument, argument because I'm like argument against for me and people know my standing politically. Um, having a Democrat on is no longer having a different economic opinion. It's like like the policies that are being driven and the effects of the policies that are being driven are pro homosexuality pro, pro literally re, not homosexuality redefining the fundamental term of marriage that's like a, a very yeah. important thing and pro transgenderism pro children like pro like like uh, like i mean predat- predatorizing children and cha- and like cutting their par- body parts off and giving them um hormone blocking things mm-hmm. like that like i think it i think t- today in america it's reached a certain level in which I think you could in good conscience and in good faith and in good conviction to the Bible say to a Democrat, okay, your time is up. Like you can't be, you can't serve both masters. You either need to step into, and it doesn't mean you need to be a Republican. You might just want to be an independent because you really don't like the Republican way of doing things economically. Yeah, okay, so... All right, so this is maybe we're starting like a new podcast here, but like well, we got to be done but, like but seven. Here's minutes. what I would say though, like when like when I passionately counsel somebody and they say, Nick, I voted Democrat my whole life. Here's how I see the party going. I am I am conflicted on these things, but these other things, I really like historic the historic Democratic Party. On what should I do? What I am more prone to do is to say, Well, you have a choice to make. You can either switch to the other party and then deal with all the problems of that party, yeah. and maybe that's better. Because maybe those problems aren't as bad. Just diff- yeah. Or if the Democratic Party in America gets reformed, mm-hmm. do you think it's going to be performed from within or without? And see, I think there is more hope to reform the Democratic Party from within. And because I think that's the only way most things get reformed. Yeah, no, I agree. If if there's like any- I like I know a pastor's wife who is in the Democratic Party, is a politician in the Democratic Party, and most of the stuff you said, she's totally against. Right, but but there's but there's the level African of perpetuation. American, I know African American Christians who hold public office in the Democratic yeah. Party, and they don't pay any attention to 
a third or half Mm -hmm. of the Democratic Party platform because they're just focused on racial justice and racial economic development for the black community. That's the reason they got into politics. That's all they care about. And they're like, yeah, I hold my nose on all that stuff, but the Republicans aren't going to help us. And these, if I'm part of the coalition, these people help us. And and my job is to take care of my people in this context. Now you can argue (laughs) like, I know I don't agree with that. I know there's so much to say that that's problematic, but at the same time, like I'm, you know, it's like when Jesus, Jesus apostles are like, Hey, that guy was baptized, was like casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him. Jesus. Yeah. Like, don't stop him. Like, yeah, he's not even following with me. There's probably a problem, but listen, don't stop him because anybody who's casting out demons in my name, isn't going to turn on the next minute and do something against me. Like whoever's not with you against you is for you. Like there's a certain extent to which you just got to like, let people follow their conscience. Now, when I sit down with some of these folks, mm-hmm. I will say, okay, what's like, my opinion is not, am I Republican or Democrat? It is yeah. our country has two parties. How do we reform both of them? Right. Because I agree with Jordan Peterson at the end of the day on this, a good that, that Democrats, their emotional mentality tends towards the classically feminine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the the Republican sort of platform at the end of the day tends towards the traditionally masculine. And both of those are needed. They need to internally reform each other to have a healthy society under all built upon a mimetic worldview though. I agree because it can't be done in a. In a I totally way. agree with that. Yes, and yes. that's where I think we're. But running there are a lot. There are more and more Republicans now that are ascribing to a poetic worldview. Oh yeah, they are dude. just doing it with the oh, Republicans. Yeah. Oh right? yeah. So no, so no to bring doubt. this to bring yeah, this back around, no I think that yeah. this this again is stewarding yeah. trust. Yeah. Like even if I even if I was a died in the wool Republican, I still would be very careful about eliminating somebody from eldership because they were Democrat. Even if I thought that was a problem, yeah, which I don't necessarily. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I would say the question is, is that person temperate? Mm-hmm. Are they respected by all? Mm-hmm. Do they believe the doctrines of the gospel? Can they defend it? Right. That's what I'm looking for. And so, and then by not, by, by not um, creating blockers where they mm-hmm. shouldn't be right. The congregation can continue to trust me that I'm not like just picking my friends. All, all I'm doing is I'm saying, right. is this man in good standing relative to first Timothy chapter yeah. three, yeah. Titus chapter one, Acts chapter 20, 1 Peter chapter 5, are they a qualified yeah. elder? If the answer is yes, then I can let the congregation decide which ones they want. Yeah. I have to make sure that they're biblically qualified. And if I do my job and then the congregation does theirs and see, they can decide who they want. If, they, if they're only voting on people who are most discerning elders think are qualified to be elders, then we're giving them a choice, but a choice among which they can't make a bad choice. I understand that. Right? If they think our process is corrupt, then there has to be a way for them to change it so that there is a way to reform the process. I mean, one good way to change a corrupt process in which you can't from it is leave. And if more, a lot of people leave, then maybe they'll realize they're screwed up and they'll change or mm-hmm. they'll die. A lot of people vote with their feet. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you can not argue, that I'm, you I'm can, not pro like in America yeah. where there's no prince to make anybody do anything, yeah. so to speak. Everything we do is voluntary. Yeah, I want to caveat the that by saying like, voluntary. if you're going to so leave the church. people always vote with their feet. Right. If you're going to, I just want to say, if you're going to leave the church, I think that that decision should be taken, like, I think that Very really seriously. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. think that you should just flippantly leave a church because. I think you probably should have pastoral leadership in doing so. And yeah. If you don't think you can trust the pastor of your church, I think you should turn to some other a different, very godly yeah. spiritual advisor yeah. to help right. you walk through that process. Yeah, even I can't if outside, imagine. Even if they're from yeah. another church. Yeah. Yeah, I th- I'm thinking of Tom Flaherty. Like, if I were going to leave mm-hmm. High Point, I, if I sat down with Tom Flaherty, head pastor of City Church, totally different church, mm-hmm. 
I think he would. I think he would go yeah. at me a little. Or if bit you're a college student, like sit down yeah. with your staff workers that yeah. you know is committed to the local church. Yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, I yeah. I think so because I think it's it's too flippant for us. Yeah, because yeah. like if especially if it's church discipline, like if the pastor's mm-hmm. come and confronted you. Yeah, and you're like, well, and I'm like, leaving. Yeah, that's one of the most dangerous things spiritually yeah. can possibly do. Because right. I'll just tell you what, almost no pastor wants to have that conversation. Right. They, Which, they're doing it because they can't they care. do otherwise. And, and because they, care they can't. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I got I to gotta wrap this up. Oh, I'm just thinking about... So yes to church membership and congregationalism can be a prudent form of church government. But yes to church membership you only build in, in particular scenarios. I agree with you that congregational church government, sheer congregationalism, yeah. the congregation just votes on everything is a yeah. bad form of church government. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. think that a mitigated one in which there are local plurality of elders included and there is a interworking of those two in accountability is a good form of government yeah whether the elders take the primary role or the congregation takes the primary role you can adjudicate that but if i was playing a church it would be one of those two it'd be those two working together with either the elders taking the main lead or the congregation taking the main lead in involving the elders yeah so i'm i am happy as a pastor with our form of church government church government yeah and i will never be an elder here because i'm not an uh i'm not a member a member maybe you could come around or maybe maybe just listen to this podcast a number of times and just see if see if it convinces you yeah we'll see what happens um all right if you like this podcast make sure you like subscribe share this with your friends give us a five-star rating leave a review and we got done at 3 30 so aaron won't be mad we'll see you in the next one goodbye